Well, good morning, everyone, and I'll just invite you to turn to Matthew 5 because we're going to be continuing with session 5 of our Seek the King and His Kingdom series. And today we're looking at Seek the King and His Kingdom Mercy. I invite you to return to the website and the podcast if you haven't seen these ones before. Uh, so there's been four which I really think help us to orientate on what's important in 2017, seeking the kingdom first. That's our memory verse as well. Um, I want to introduce you now to the parable of the wrecking ball. The parable of the wrecking ball. So I want to use this as a bit of a guiding metaphor today to point to something that is inside us that is highly destructive It's deadly to faith, it's deadly to hope, it's deadly to uh, love. And it's to do with this lack of mercy. So it's the parable of the wrecking ball. And what I want to say is that, first of all, in the parable of the wrecking ball, the wrecking ball, when it is stationary, just hanging there, has no real power. It's not really anything to be afraid of. It just hangs there on a steel cable or a chain. It's incredibly heavy and dense, but it just hangs there. However, when it is pulled or it is pushed, energy is imparted to it, it has real power. Destructive power, demolishing power. The other thing about the wrecking ball and the parable of the wrecking ball is that once it is swinging, it won't stop until its momentum and its inertia is completely spent. Nothing will stop it. The third thing about the parable of the wrecking ball is that it demolishes on the way out and it demolishes on the way in. It demolishes on the way out and it demolishes on the way in. So what I want us to do today is to learn the parable of the wrecking ball, which is really the parable of unmercy, ungrace, unforgiveness. And without any um, uh, choreography, any choreography, any pre-planning, you can already see that there's a real message of the need for mercy today. I got a letter from Alan as well. Without being asked, it was about unforgiveness, and I'll probably send that to you um, next week. So I really think that we need to understand what the parable of the wrecking ball is, the parable of unmercy, the parable of ungrace, the parable of unforgiveness. So I want to spend a bit of time there, and then I want to take us to Jesus. Because the last thing that I want is for you to go, you know what? God is great. I'm not. I need to do better. Like I'm just, that's just such a tiring thing for you, a burdensome thing. But what I want you to do is to realize that there is a reality here in the parable of the wrecking ball. It's a reality that we're going to struggle with all our lives. It's a reality that destroys churches. It destroys relationships. It's a reality that is not hidden from God. You can hide it. You can put on a face. You can put all the right behaviors on. But it is not hidden in your heart what is going on with the parable of the wrecking ball. And so it's a pretty heavy one today, guys, but I just want you to bear with me. And you might say, hey, why aren't we back in Revelation? In effect, we are, but Revelation itself says this, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth forever. So there's no point talking about kingdom stuff in Revelation if you don't understand what it actually means to be a member of God's kingdom. And so we've had four sessions and this is the fifth one. And again, I invite you to go back to have a look at what it means to seek the king and his kingdom heart, to seek the king and his kingdom attitudes. 
You know, from this song of the 24 elders in Revelation 5, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests. Now, we know this is a process. We know it's not necessarily just a lightning bolt, and now you are the perfect kingdom person. If there was, there'd probably be no need for all those letters that Paul wrote, the Gospels, etc. There'd be no need for the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So this is, a look, be realistic about this, but hey, how could it be? How, how, how great could it be in this age, particularly the age that Revelation points us to, of seeing a merciful people. I mean, look on Facebook, and even in Christian circles, look on Facebook, you know, Twitter, um, blogging and so forth, podcasting, like there just seems to be a distinct lack of mercy, a distinct lack of grace. And yet, if we are truly a kingdom of priests serving our God, then we should be a kingdom of gracious priests, a, a, a kingdom of merciful priests, Our memory verse is, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we know that they are Jesus' words. Okay, So in 2017, Jesus is saying to us, the same thing he's been saying for the last 2,000 years is, seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And you'll know from previous sessions that righteousness is literally his right way of living, his justice. So you're seeking that in your workplace. You're seeking that in your home place. You're seeking that uh, wherever you go. And the question we asked in previous sessions is, what would this righteousness look like for you as, there they all are, accountant, teacher, administrator, civil engineer. I won't read them all, but you know, lawyer, mechanic, artist, musician, pilot. What would Jesus' righteousness look like if you were seeking it, actively pursuing it, actively embodying it, actively enfleshing it? What would it look like in those places? And again, I invite you to go back to the previous sessions and have a look at those. Because in our session in Revelation, you need to understand that with all the chaos that happens, there is a people that embody and enflesh the kingdom attributes, even in the midst of extreme and trying and life-taking circumstances. The next thing we asked was, what would Jesus' Beatitudes look like? Remember Beatitudes... And that's where we're at now in Matthew 5. We went through a whole bunch of them and the whole point was, well, what does it look like if these again are enfleshed and embodied in our place of business, the office, the work site, the home, the garden, the crew room, the cabin, the studio, the kitchen, the work area, the servery, the conference room, the theaterette, the job site. What, what would it be like to have people that are blessed because they're mournful, because they, they really care, blessed because they're um, mourning over... over over sin and mourning over their own issues and, and really open to God. You know, they're poor in spirit. They're um, pursuing and hungering for, for righteousness. <clears throat> Let's just read them together just to remind ourselves. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and, and, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I'm going to stop and I'm just going to pray. Um, because these words I sent are just flowing over the top of us. They're not actually sinking in. And these words are profoundly deep and they, are profound, they have profound consequences if they are lived out or not lived out. Okay, so I'm just going to pray. Father, I just want to pray that just here with my brothers and sisters, Lord, we are a needy people. We don't get oftentimes just how needy we really are but i just pray that today we would and today we'd cry out for the full power of your spirit 
so that we could truly be poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Our world so desperately needs it. You call for it amongst your people. I just pray, O Lord, that we would really see the gravity, the weight of these magnificent words. Help us, Lord, not to go away unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen. So they are the ones that we went through in previous sessions. And uh, we had said, well, what would they look like in those workplaces? And then I tried to flip it around because I wanted to, to look at it from a different angle. And I said, let's think about a de-attitude. So let's think about what happens when those attitudes aren't there, those attitudes of the kingdom aren't there. And it's a bit of a play on words. Um, but we looked at the de-attitude of blessed are those who mourn. Um, oh, sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the opposite of that or the de-attitude of that was unblessed are the proud in spirit. I'm sure you've seen many people proud in spirit in the workplace. You've pro- it's probably happened to you or in the home place and the effects that that has. You can go and again, look at the old, um, old sessions and have a look at those. Unblessed are those who don't care. They're not mournful. They don't care. They're just like going about their own way. Meanwhile, people around them, there's collateral damage. There's stuff going on. Um, unblessed, unblessed are the unrestrained. This was to do with blessed are the meek. Just fly off the handle. They're not depending upon God's power, which is what it means to be meek, depending upon his justice. Again, we had a look at that and we had a bit of a think, well, what would that look like in the workplace? We've probably seen it. And then unblessed are those who hunger and thirst for pleasures alone instead of taking a few hard knocks for the kingdom. Unblessed are those who hunger and thirst for pleasure alone. And then we looked at uh, in the last session was what does it look like in 2017 to have pursued God and pursued his kingdom heart and to do it with all our heart. And then we looked at how he has done it with all his heart for us. Remember Cranion, the hill of the skull. We looked at Jonathan going up that hill and battling away. And his uh, armor bearer was, I'm with you all the way. I'm with you. Remember that story? Such a great story from the Old Testament. But then we saw there was an even better story of the Lord Jesus Christ who went up Cranion. He went up the Golgotha, not to actually conquer an army, but to conquer sin and death. And he did it with a cross on his back, with all his heart. That's what we're called to. Never, ever, ever be satisfied with half-hearted or quarter-hearted measures. The Holy Spirit will continually remind you of your own apathy. Please listen to him. It will be something you battle all the time. Please listen to him. Don't let your heart become ossified and calcified and hardened. And so we're back to the wrecking ball. And you might say, Adrian, what does the wrecking ball have to do with these Beatitudes? Well, it has to do with one. And I just want to spend our time on one. And it's in Matthew 5, 7. And it's blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How our world and each of you need mercy from one another, because you're not perfect people. How Donald Trump needs mercy. How, um, what's his name? Prime Minister Trumbull? Turnbull? <laughs> how he needs mercy. Um, how each of us from each other just need mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, sometimes theologians and pastors like to play around with words and so forth. But before we go there, uh, do you want to go deeper? That's the question I've asked over and over again. Do you really want to go deeper? Do you want to be genuinely salt and light, trusting more deeply, hoping more deeply, loving more deeply? Do you want to really live these kingdom values? Imagine the church, this little church, living these out as, as the times do get darker. 
Imagine that. Or if you want to live them out and you genuinely want to go deeper, even if there's a little spark, a little kind of glimmer of, of, I want to go deeper, then you need to know that we have a real problem. And you're going to continue to have this problem, particularly if you've been brought up in a Christian home. This is your greatest temptation. Your greatest temptation is to lack mercy, to be judgmental, to be harsh with other people. This is the problem of the wrecking ball, the de-attitude of the wrecking ball. And it can wreck us. It can wreck your relationships. Now, I alluded to it before. I said sometimes theologians like to play around with words and give you fancy schmancy kind of interpretations from the Greek and so forth. So I thought I better be careful. I'm spending a whole sermon on just one verse today. I better make sure I've got merciful right and I better make sure I've got this, this exact uh, verse right. So I went to all the different translations. I went to my Greek concordance, etc., etc. And do you know what blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy actually means? Pause for effect. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Almost every single one from the King James, New King James, NIV, ESV, Net Bible and the Greek Concordance say, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. (laughs) So there's no like kind of Greek gymnastics today. It's just simply blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And the way I want to do this again is like I did previously is just flip it around a little bit and go, if that is the attitude, then what is the de-attitude? Because oftentimes something becomes way, way more obvious in its absence. And I want you to understand that mercy in the Greek is actually a very full word. It literally means to be not just compassionate with your words, but compassionate in action and, surprisingly, not, in attitude. It's literally a behavioural trait. It's a, it's, a, it's a habit, a good habit. It's a habit of compassion, a habit of compassion of the heart. So that then means the de-attitude is also going to be a vector, an attitude, an ongoing thing, a, a pattern of behaviour. In this case, a negative behavioural trait. And I've actually got what I'm calling a tripartite de-attitude, a three-part de-attitude to mercy. And so the first one that I want to bring to your attention is this. The first de-attitude, the first antithesis, antithesis the, um, the opposite is complaint. And it's so interesting. I didn't tell Rick to bring it up, the murmuring thing. Um, I've actually got a verse from the Old Testament about that. Murmuring is actually an onomatopoeic word in the Hebrew, which literally, it, it, in the Hebrew, it sounds like, like mumbling, you know, like when you're under your voice. Sometimes it could happen here, you know, you're mumbling about someone, mumbling about the songs maybe, mumbling about what's going on out there, mumble, mumble, mumble. That's like, that's what it means to complain and murmur. And like, I know we've all done it, you know. And, um, you know, when we complain about people, about their perceived slights, problems, I really want to thank Ben, I don't think he's here, but gave us such a great picture yesterday. It's almost like, as you're thinking about that person and complaining about them, you've got an image in 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 your mind of who they are. And it's like, you know, when you photocopy a face and then you keep photocopying it and you keep photocopying it, you keep thinking about it, keep thinking about what happens to that photocopy. It gets distorted and grainy. You no longer even see them as a person. You actually begin to see them as the enemy. And it could be the smallest little slight you're complaining about. Photocopy is going over and over again in your mind, over and over again in your mind. Complaining about people. This is a de-attitude and it is what actually um, the wrecking ball can hang off. It's a destructive thing. 
In Numbers, we're told that the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. And they're actually consumed by fire. And you go, that's pretty harsh. Actually, think about it for a moment. Right in the center of that camp was the glowing pillar of flame. Right in the center, they could see it every single day. This God had already provided them with food, with water, with everything they needed. And they begin to mumble, 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 mumble. And because they've got, you know, what is, if you're given much, much is demanded of you. So they've got God's presence there, his very presence, invisible, tangible, three-dimensional form. And so the judgment of God falls almost straight away. And what you see there is an example of what God thinks about complaint. The thing about complaint is that it masks the good. And Kerry, Kerry mentioned something to me last night at Pickney Point, and I was feeling exactly the same way. To us, uh, you know, you're looking out over that beautiful view, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but <laughs> too late now, I suppose. Um, but we're, you know, thinking we've always like we've always dreamed of having a house with an awesome view, right? So you go to Picnic Point and you see that awesome view, and you go, oh, "I wish I could have a house like this." What's the problem in that moment? And Kerry told me, "You're not actually enjoying the view in that moment right now. You're wanting something else. You're not being thankful for the incredible complexity." and the beauty of creation that God's put in front of you and your ability to interact with it. And it's the same with people. Like God has made people. He's made each of you. And we look at them and the photocopy, it's gone over and over and over again, and we begin to mumble and complain about them. We don't see them for who they are. We don't see them for what God has done for them. Philippians tells us, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. So you need to understand the generation around us will be complaining a lot. But the church, kingdom people, are not to be complainers, especially not about each other. Because if you do, you are unblessed. Unblessed are the complainers. And I don't say that as an indictment, I just say it as a reality. Unblessed are the complainers. Have you ever known a complainer who's actually happy in that moment? Like, have you ever been happy in your complaint? Yeah. It's also unblessed because of what this wrecking ball of de-attitude destroys. And I just want to be quite blunt. It destroys faith. It begins to demolish faith. Because in that moment when you're complaining, who is God to you? Who is God? Is he your provider? Is he your saviour? Is he your redeemer? Is he bigger than whatever is bugging you? And remembering the parable of the wrecking ball destroys on the way out. So if you begin complaining about people and they get a sense of that and you're supposed to be a a good Christian man or an older Christian man or even an older Christian woman and there's this complaining, those people begin to go, oh, hang on, that's what they think of me. I'm just going to be blunt with you. It is destructive. It is destructive to faith. There are people that have fallen away for lesser reasons than that. And yes, they will have to hold an account before the Lord, but so will you for your careless words. You know, people who hear you complaining about them or they hear it third hand or fourth hand, it becomes like a sucking kind of de-energizing kind of thing to faith. And I've just got one question when we complain about our Christian brothers and sisters and also when we complain about those that are not Christians. Has God accepted our Christian brothers and sisters? Has he? Does God merely complain about them sitting in heaven, mumbling 
talking about how terrible they are, or does he do something? We know the answer, don't we? There was no wrecking ball from God. There was no wrecking ball from the Lord Jesus Christ. He came as a man for sinful people, people that he had every right to complain about, and instead of demolishing, instead of destroying, he took up a cross. And so then when we complain about people, or it's in our heart, and if anyone here right now is going, this is not a problem for me, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. You're breathing the oxygen of this culture. It is affecting you. You need to know. And these are all, I know it probably sounds heavy. I just want you to know that these are things that help me when I begin to feel judgmental, to understand what God has done for people. And it's not just our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's our brothers and sisters in Adam. Because did Jesus wait for a whole bunch of people to repent and start seeking God before he went to the cross? No. While we were still sinners. So while we were just brothers in Adam, not brothers in Christ, he came for us. Think about that next time you start to judge someone or someone's done something bad to you at the shops or someone's done something bad to you um, in your real estate deal or someone's done this or that. Like, Think about that. Has God accepted them? Because of the cross, he has actually gone to the cross for them. Yes, they need to bend the knee now. They need to turn. They need to humble themselves. But look at what God has done for them. So why are we complaining about them? If the first sibling of de-mercy is complaint, then its second brother is criticism. The second de-attitude to mercy is criticism. And I could spend a whole bunch of time talking about the necessity of godly speaking the truth in love criticism, but that's not our problem in this church and it's not our problem in our generation. Our problem is the opposite. We are too quick to criticise. We are too quick to hack on each other. We are too quick to hack on other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are too quick to hack on other churches. Way too quick. And you think it's just a feel-good kind of thing. It is not. It's a wrecking ball. The world looks in and they see all these divisions between the churches. Where does that come from? It's come from simple people like us who have not learnt what it means to show mercy. And on that trajectory is us towards each other, and then further along the trajectory is you know, the hate stuff that goes on from supposed Christians online all the way to, back in the day, churches or Christians killing other Christians. You say criticism is necessary. Yes, it is, but what I'm talking about is when it becomes a pattern, a heart state, a wallowing negativity, it's a wrecking ball. The wrecking ball is swinging. And Jesus says that blessed are the merciful so we can extrapolate and go that unblessed are the criticizers. Unblessed. I don't, again, I don't say it harshly. I just say it as truth. And it's un, again, it's unblessed because of what this wrecking ball destroys, this wrecking ball of criticism. It destroys hope. Do you understand? Think about it with me. Criticism that attacks without a redemptive heart. I'm so glad we sang There is a Redeemer. I used to sing that to the girls almost every night. Don't do any more. It'd be a bit creepy. Um, But I knew that when I looked at their little faces about to go to sleep, and I knew from my own life, I knew they would need a Redeemer. Um, And the trouble with criticism is it's often just chapter one kind of stuff. It's like, oh, you did this, you did that, and you start criticizing, and there's no chapter two. You know what chapter two is? There is a redeemer. There is redemption. 
And if we're criticizing without chapter two, without, hang on, hang on, hang on, how, how can I help this person? Maybe it's just praying and keeping it to yourself because we are supposed to make allowance for other people's faults. Um, maybe it's like, okay, maybe, I don't know, maybe the Lord, I'm probably going to have to sacrifice something myself to help them. I don't know what it is, but would you help me? Help me. Because when we criticize and attack, it destroys hope. People begin to feel um, oppressed. You feel dirty, you feel discouraged, you feel... Has anyone felt that way before? And now let me ask a harder question. Do you think maybe sometimes you've done that to other people? You didn't mean to, maybe. You were just having a hard day. Did it ever turn out well? It's a wrecking ball, isn't it? And then it brings me again to the hope of the, the gospel and just one question when we criticise our brothers and sisters for whatever. Maybe we're criticising our husband or our wife. Has God accepted them? What has God done for them? This extraordinary love of God who doesn't apply the wrecking ball. He doesn't just sit in heaven criticising. He takes up a cross and wrecks himself, essentially. What a, I just wrote in here when I was preparing, what a saviour, I love you. <laughs> what a saviour, I love you. So why are we criticising people that God has died for? Without chapter 2, redemption. Why? The third one that I want to, um, the last one, if the first two brothers of mercy's de-attitude are complaint and criticism, this is the big brother now, the big brother with the biggest stick, it's condemnation. Because inevitably those first two brothers, the first de-attitudes, they bring with them the third brother, the third brother of condemnation. Condemnation. And I say unblessed are the condemners. Why? Let me read to you these words. And I really just ask you to just concentrate on these words. These are Jesus' words from Luke. They're often quickly diluted into something else because people don't want to live with the reality. I don't want you to be that way with God's word. When you hear God's word, I just want you to listen to it and I just want you to humble yourself. And whatever the first default reaction you have to it, I just want you to stop. I want you to pray internally, go, Lord, Lord, help me, help me, help me hear, help me obey, help me understand. So it's from Luke. It's very familiar. Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Unfortunate chapter break right there, which gives away the next bit. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Verse 37, do not judge, or section break, sorry. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Now, the first thing we try and do is dilute that. Now we're supposed to judge good from evil, so forth. Yep, absolutely. But the next bit, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. So there is a type of judgment that is judging judgmentally rather than judging justly. Judging ju judgmentally is to judge with condemnation. And I don't think I need to prove it to you too much because you've all felt it yourself, the wrecking ball inside you. You've looked at someone, they've got the blurry face now, and you're just condemning. You're just trying to get even. You're just wanting to see them pulled down. And it is so destructive. You know, in Alan's letter, he alludes to it, but he's told me, you know, as an older man, he's seen many different churches God can't bless churches like that. God doesn't bless churches like that. And you could have the best, the best experience on a Sunday, and yet, you know what? All this stuff, you think about it, you could go to any big church right now, have an awesome experience of worship, and underneath, 
criticizing, condemning, complaining. It's all hidden though by the rock music. You think about it. It's, it's, it's completely invisible and yet God sees it. I'm not saying that's happening, but I'm saying it could happen so easily. You could also actually go to a church where there is theological precision. There is preaching that you have never heard before. It is so bang on truth. You could, you could sit there and just soak in it and go, oh, this is wonderful. The connections that I'm seeing, the things in Scripture, oh, amazing. And yet that person with his mouth up the front is preaching God's word and yet in his heart he is a condemner, he is a criticizer, he is a complainer. He is judgmental. It happens, my brothers and sisters. I'm not going to give examples. I'm not going to name and shame. You can see them. You can Google some stuff and find it out right now in some big churches. Maybe you've been in churches like that. And I tell you what, I just wish those men would shut their mouths because they kill their, 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 their sons and daughters, their, the faith of their sons and daughters. That's where often it comes out. They, they, oh. it's, it's awful. And it has to, it has to stop. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Now this next bit, forgive and you will be forgiven. That alludes to elsewhere where Jesus says, unless you forgive, you can't be forgiven. We're going to read a parable of that uh, later on. So I just ask that when you think about oh, that, that thing rises up inside, the wrecking ball, it starts to swing because someone's done something, they haven't measured up to your standards. Maybe it's a little thing, maybe it's a big thing. The, the murmuring starts the mumbling, the complaining, maybe it's invisible, it's in the heart, then the criticizing, then the condemning. I'll just ask you, I'll just ask you, would you orientate on God in that moment? And would you again just think to yourself firstly, if I do this, there is going to be destruction with it. And one of the things that condemnation destroys is love. When you are judged unjustly, when someone doesn't have all the facts, when someone puts themselves up here and you're down there, because that's what you do when you criticise and condemn, you're now up here, you're in a position of elevated power. What it does is it destroys love. You don't feel, that person doesn't feel loved in that moment. You know, I don't have time to go into blessed are the pure in heart, but many of you know how to mouth words and many, and many times I've done the same thing, mouthing words, I'm just in this mode. And in my heart though, I'm thinking, oh no, and I'm just, what I'm asking for you to do is the same thing I guess I'm asking myself is that in those moments, in those moments where I just orientate on God, the Holy Spirit and go, Lord, love must be genuine. That's what your word says. So the only way that can be is if you do a miraculous work in my heart right now. And I can tell you, I've seen it. I've seen it. It has enabled me, the people that I've been angry at and upset with to, to text them and go, we're here for you, man. We're going to come and help you or whatever. I'm just going to show you tangible love. And I feel it in my heart. It's not just a, oh, I just, I just wish we, I wish we could all get that. And I'm not perfect, you can ask my wife, I'm not perfect in it at all. But I'm on a journey like all of you are. And I just don't want us to live with the wrecking ball, just doing its thing. I want us to be aware of this. And I know this all sounds pretty heavy, but I think it needs to be. Again, let's be chapter two people when it comes to condemnation. Okay, condemnation is just a full stop on their position where they are now. Love, speaking the truth in love, is seeing chapter two. It's seeing redemption. It's seeing where they might go and what might happen, being prepared to actually do something to help carry their burden. 
And many times, you don't even need to say anything. You just need to give them a bit of time. You just need to make allowance for their faults, like it says. But if you continue to do the photocopier thing, again, I just want to remember, I just want to remind you, has God accepted them? God calls us to mercy, which is to forgive and to forbear and to make allowances for each other's fault. As one version of the Bible says, make allowance for each other's faults from Colossians 3.13, or more familiarly, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Man, that's a, that's a tough call, isn't it? That's so hard. But that's what the Lord calls us to, and that's what he's equipped us for, for his Holy Spirit, which I'll talk about um, shortly. God, again, didn't apply the wrecking ball to them. He showed them incredible love. And I just want to say a quick word about mercy and grace. God has called us to mercy. I found this very interesting. God has called us to mercy, but think about God's mercy and God's grace, because mercy and grace are not the same thing. Mercy kind of equalizes things. So say someone does something to you, Um, and you forgive them, you show them mercy. Now it's equal. Well, think about this verse here. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls our Abba Father. So you see the difference between mercy and grace there? Mercy hasn't just made people right. What's it done? Grace has then kicked in and made them family. Grace has kicked in and, made, and given them the Holy Spirit. Not just forgiving, but adopting, elevating, enthroning. Again, I wrote, I love you. Oh, like God doesn't just um, you know, kind of atone for us. He makes us family. Mercy and grace. That's the grace of God. He makes us sons and daughters. So if we judge judgmentally, we are judging God's family or we are judging people that God has died for. Has God accepted them? When we complain, criticize, condemn, and the wrecking ball destroys out and back, demolishing faith, hope, and love, has God accepted them? You know what? This will be something that we struggle with all our lives in the flesh, but it's not something that... God has left you alone in. He's told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He's asking us instead of a wrecking ball to hand out a cup of cold water. If he's told us to pray for his enemies, how much more so, uh, pray for our enemies, how much more so um, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And imagine that if with all our heart, we were people full of mercy and grace. Imagine that as as the world gets nastier and meaner, we just grow more loving as we begin to see and experience more of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. This place would just glow. You'd, you'd just be glowing out there. You'd just be effervescing, like I'm sweating kind of now. Though. Um, you know, but there'd be something about you. There'd be something supernatural. That's what the Lord Jesus calls us to. And again, I'm not here to say, this is cool, you're not, do something, work harder. What I'm here to say is, right now, Right now, you can be the most merciful person in the whole world. You can be the most loving person in the whole world. You can be the most gracious person in the whole world. You know why? Because God sent the spirit of his son into our heart. Where? Into our hearts. How does that work in reality? I don't know. I don't know. But he's with us. So you can be the most loving person right now. 
The most gracious, all it is is, Lord, with all your spirit, would you come upon me? I've struggled, I've strained, I keep failing, and I'm just getting angrier and more bitter in many ways. But with your spirit, you can make me merciful. You can make me gracious. You've, if, you've saved me. And I just want to stop now and say, if you don't understand the love of God, a sure indicator is the way you treat other people. Remember First, first John? First John says that God is light. If we are walking in the light as he is in the light, does anyone remember the next bit? We have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship. So a key performance indicator, I hesitate to use it, but a key performance indicator, KPI, of whether we have understood the love of God is how we see other people and whether we can love other people, whether we can love the people that annoy us, we can love the people that are enemies in a sense. And so next time the criticising begins to rise, the complaining, the condemning, I just want you to triple O it. Remember that triple O thing. I want you to orientate on God. And like some of you, oh, I just want you to know like it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Please don't sit there going, Adrian's just talking again. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get where I'm at. You know, he doesn't understand. It's his passion. I'm not naturally a passionate person. I'm, I feel in my 40s, I'm like more naturally a weary person, right? But when the Lord grips your heart, oh, it's amazing. So I want you to orientate on the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to open up to him and I want you to obey him. I want you to think about what Jesus has done. And I want you to think about what that would look like now as he does something right now in this church and, uh, and in the workplace. And I just want to finish off with this picture because I think it's an amazing picture of mercy. You may have seen some of this. This lady, Anya, I'm not going to say her second Danish name because I'll get it wrong. Anya is a Danish aid worker and on social media she sees this boy that they nickname in Nigeria the witch boy. Ostracised by his family, he's like 12 months old and they think that he is a witch. So he is immediately evicted from the family. So now just think about this as another guiding metaphor and I never, ever, ever, ever want to like use a metaphor and diminish the suffering of this young boy. But if the suffering of this young boy can teach us a thing or two, then I will use it. The nature of that witch boy was that you don't measure up this standard. We think you're a witch. We think you're dangerous. So what we're going to do is we're going to evict you from our family. And you go, oh, how could that happen? How? You're not in that culture, so don't judge. That's what this whole sermon's about. Isn't it? Um, so that little witch boy, he's just wandering around the streets, trying to eat scrap. Like he, he's only just learned how to walk. And you can see on the right, his just emaciated state. Um, and there's that angel. I don't even know if she's a Christian, but she's certainly acting way more Christian than probably any of us here. Uh, she's giving that young kid a, a little uh, bottle of water because she found him. So she just uh, started asking questions uh, and then, you know, through social media and so forth, and then found out where he was, what city, and went looking for him and found him. The one on the left is 12 months later. So the two-year-old boy was ostracised, left to die, because his family believed he was a, rich, uh, a witch. After hearing about the boy, Anya launched a rescue mission to find him. Um, when she did find him, his name's Hope, 
He was in ill health and required an operation a few months after he was found. But a year on, Hope is now attending school and from a series of Facebook, Facebook posts shared last week, is happy, healthy and surrounded by loving friends and family. In an update on a Facebook page early last month, Anya wrote that Hope was growing with speed. He is such a handsome, healthy and very happy young boy because of the tremendous love and care he receives every day from all our staff and all our children. So what you see with the witch boy is a particular societal standard that says he is to be rejected. And we do it all the time ourselves. We can look at our brothers and sisters and go, there's a particular standard here. You haven't lived up to it. You are to be rejected. But the Lord Jesus Christ has a completely different set of standards. He died for that little witch boy just like he died for you. And I want you to keep that picture in your head when you see your brother or sister and you want to complain about him or whatever. And just think about what Jesus has done and what mercy would look like. It's an amazing thing. And I just want to finish off with this final word, which is a parable. It's very familiar to you. I just ask you to listen to it as we lead into communion. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So uh, 70 times seven. Some people think it's actually 70 to the power of seven. So not more than 490, way more. He's saying, keep forgiving, keep forgiving. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king wanting to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a 100 denarii. Denarii. So it's like owing hundreds of thousands of dollars versus ten dollars. It's it's a ridiculously large amount of difference. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. No mercy. When other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over the jailers to be tormented until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father, this is Jesus speaking, will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. I'm going to finish every sermon this year that I preach with this final challenge. I'm going to ask you a question. The question will be this. Why did the house on the sand fall flat? And then I'm going to read. Because the one who built it... In fact, just let me read it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose up, the winds beat and blew against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. The difference between the house on the rock and the house on the sand, my brothers and sisters, is the difference between not doing God's word and doing it.
you'll never get away from that. Yes, you do it in his power, you do it with his authority, you do it with the presence of his Holy Spirit. And so I'm just asking you, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy.